Welcome to the Wellness Champions Network podcast. I'm host Sarah McGuinness. The Wellness Champions Network is a group of leaders from around the globe who are passionate about well-being. In the network, we learn, share and connect with colleagues and well-being experts alike. We believe that by working together, we can build a happier, healthier world where everyone has the opportunity to thrive. In this session, we turn our focus to the question, how do we best engage leaders in well-being? Leaders who prioritise well-being can make a big difference to an organisation by engaging, inspiring and supporting employees to be their best. However, not all leaders understand the value of well-being or see it as more than a tick box exercise. So how do we influence those leaders to engage in well-being? And how can leaders embrace well-being through the COVID-19 recovery phase? Looking to the future, the way we work will change dramatically and leaders will need to learn how to create a well and adaptable workforce ready to meet the challenges ahead. In this interview, Jono Brent shares his perspectives on leadership and well-being. Jono was CEO at Kinetics and has recently moved to Orion in a transformation lead role. Over 2019, Jono led a significant project looking at the future of work across the electricity industry, with well-being and leadership at the core. Jono shares his insights from the project and shares tips on how to build a case for well-being at work and how to engage leaders in the conversation around well-being. Thanks, Sarah, for the chance to talk to everyone in the group and nice to e-meet everyone, even though it's, uh, we'd love to just be able to do these things in person. We're, uh, we're learning a lot about the uh, the video conference world. So I think actually you, you hit the nail on the head just before when you said, at the moment, I think leadership of well-being is at an all-time high. The biggest challenge we face is the retraction back to the way we were before this started. So I think that the coming six months to our months is going to be the, where the real challenge is. Right now, probably leaders around New Zealand have probably stepped into the role of, of operating to, to generate the best well-being of their people. The question is, can we stay there? So I'll come back to that a bit later because I think I have some ideas about how to do that. So so yes, yeah, so Sarah's, Sarah's right. So at the start of last year, um, I was the chief executive of Kinetics. I'd been in that role for nine years. Kinetics is an electrical contractor. We've got about 350 staff. But my mind over probably the last three to four years has been everything we're doing now in our organization is great, but is it the right work for what we need to do in the future? And I'm talking in the future, I'm talking 10 to 20 years away. So I'm not talking about what, what's our next strategy or next business plan. I'm talking about what is our long-term sort of positioning. And, and so I p- approached our our board and our parent company's board and said, I think the only way to really understand the future is to spend some time in it, which is kind of an interesting thing, is to actually articulate it, picture it, you know, come to grips with it, what challenges they're going to be, what we're likely to face, how we like how we will approach it, and sort of articulate what, what 20 years from now looks like, and then look back at where we currently are and, uh, and ask ourselves the question, is the ship that we're currently sailing going to sail towards where we need to be, or is it sailing off somewhere else into the, into the sunset? And so we started the process of going, okay, where does the industry need to position itself? What's going to happen to things like humanity, issues like climate, you know, digital disruption? There was no sort of stone unturned. And so to be able to do that, I asked if it was, I, first of all, I asked whether I could take a real strong leadership role in it and secondly to be able to do that to be seconded out of my role for six months to be able to do it so which was great so the company committed to that process put an acting CEO into my role and then allowed me to really start to sort of swim around in the future so we spent quite a lot of time articulating the the challenges we intended we expected to face what sort of impact what was our purpose you know really sort of far-reaching stuff but 
and interestingly, probably one of the most telling things looking back from the future was the significant gap in capability we had between where we are now and where we're going to be. And then when you match the trajectory of our capability, it was not going to end up where we needed to be. And when I say capability, I'm talking capability pretty holistically. I'm talking about technical capability, leadership, well-being and engagement. So it's, it's, it's a very holistic view at that our, our trajectory of capability was not going to be sufficient to the future that we saw. So, it, and interestingly, when you, when you permeate around in the future and look back, and you see the insufficiency of what you're currently doing, it then generates the energy to actually look forward from the current. If you look forward from the current towards a future that you're not really sure about, or maybe a, a blurry future, there's always a reason to not do things. You can always find the balance of everything going on, risks, rewards, all that sort of stuff. When you are compelled from a future, everything you do now seems like, wow, we have to do stuff and we have to do it now. Um, so, and that, and I think that's one of the interesting challenges I think we face with anything to do with things like capability. And, and when I say well, capability, I talked about well-being. Is is that we're trying to? I think we're trying to push it forward from a problem state as opposed to being drawn in from a future fulfilled. So really, what we spend now is we spend a lot of time, what I'd call, in future-oriented speaking in our and with our board and with our executive team. So our actions are orientated from the future, not what we're currently deal with. And look, we're only just at the beginning of the shift because only, we've only just finished the strategy work and now have, uh, as of the 1st of April, I'm now in the transformation component. The transformation is how do we shift to become a future-orientated organization uh, as opposed to a, from, a, from a current state organization. It's going to be some interesting challenges. So I, I, and I'm not yet sure I have all the answers to that, but, I'm, <laughs> but that's what the new role is all about. That's fantastic. And looking to that, just so we can kind of build a bit of a picture of that, when you're talking about 20 to 30 years time, what, what are you thinking the future of work will look like? What are yeah, we aiming yeah. to? Well, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I'm no expert in the actual, there's a lot more educated people in what, you know, the future of work is about things like flexible working and, 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 um, um, uh, sharing your talents and human uh, and human capability, you know, the idea that in the future might be employed by seven different people and work for, you know, different organizations for different times of the week, et cetera, and things like that. But but I think the the key that we see is things like, you know, there's definitely, you know, we see that the, the traditional model of things like job descriptions, remuneration systems, all that sort of stuff is, is probably uh, constraining the system of capability development. So we're looking now at sort of going, okay, what, what will the future of work be between our group of companies, our industry? Um, we've got some ideas rolling out at things like, um, how do you share human capital across different organizations? Um, how do you exchange talent? How do you knowledge share? They're, these are all things that we see are sort of like the new system of work. So it's not necessarily do we work from home or not? That's to me not flexible working. It's just a different, you know, you can do your work sitting in a different seat. I'm talking about the concept of, you know, that you are not bound by or your work's not bound by job descriptions and REM systems and things like that. So we're starting to look back and going, the capability development system that we're currently on sort of basically hones us in on a certain way of being, certain way of operating, certain type of job type, whereas the future is more flexibility, sharing, knowledge transfer, all those sorts of things. So and now we don't actually know how to do that yet but once again so I'm, I, I'm a little bit of preaching from an orientated state a future orientated state without actually the full knowledge about how to do it but I what I can see now probably more than ever is the path we're on is not going to be sufficient for the future in our industry I don't know what everyone else's industry is like
So I'm thinking about that too, in terms of leadership. So I imagine there's also a leadership shift from the way perhaps leaders operate at the moment, which might be a command and control for some or, or whatever feels comfortable. Um, you know, again, looking to that future state, do you think there'll be a different role for leaders? Uh, like sort of uh, virtually the polar opposite of what we've described leadership in the past. <laughs> um, so, so the leadership of the past has, we've, we've worshipped the what I we we use the terminology hero leader. So the hero leader is the the centre of the hub and spoke who makes the the dominating speeches, commands people. We're going that way, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We probably are seeing that the and people may have heard like servant leader, but I, we probably use the phrase host leader. The host leader is someone who sort of facilitates, enables, engages, provides context, and then gets their team fully inside of what is needed, and then creates a you know, workforce that has the ability to go after that themselves based on purpose context etc rather than you said you said before hero leaders based on command control hub and spoke you know plans strategies return on investments they're all they're all in the domain what i'd describe as a as of a hero leader now there are times when the hero leader is absolutely necessary. I think people sometimes think that I'm sort of saying, you know, death to the hero leader, long live the host leader, but it's not like that at all. It actually, you're, you're actually it's situational. There are times like in an emergency response that you probably need someone to go follow me out of the, if your building's on fire, you know, it's, you know, that's the type of, you know, it's the type of leadership that's needed in that occasion. But in most situations, probably what, what tends to happen is that permeates across all aspects of the business and people end up, you know, I suppose to give a little background to that, we did some work in kinetics a few years ago and because we had previously or historically probably lived a lot off sort of what I'd call a more command and control leadership framework. Uh, there were two main underlying cultures of our business. One of them was, this, we need to wait to be told. And the second was called a why bother culture. And the wait to be told culture is, is that it's safer to do what you're told to do because then if it goes wrong, it's not your fault. It's someone else's fault. And, th and secondly, uh, why bother is, is that came from we people had ideas and they wanted to create a new op new opportunities and connects, but if you told someone nothing would ever change, so why bother? So those were sort of our two underpinning cultures that often lead to people being significantly disengaged. So a lot of the stuff that we're creating is off the back of what we discovered in our organization um, a number of years ago. And the reason that was permeating was because of our basically because of our leadership style. So when you talk about leading in the new world or the new leading in the new future work, absolutely, it, all, it actually all comes from the from the, from your leadership, mm. um, which is not an easy thing to change. When for the last however many decades of business we've worshipped the other type of leadership, is my view. And thinking about that, actually, that's a really good snapshot. So in in that style of culture that you had, you know, when you started out on that journey. How did you engage with, with leaders then and what worked and, you know, for those who still saw the old way as the way to go, <laughs> what happened then? Yeah, no, well, we've, yeah, and we've been through a really interesting journey because not everybody sees that straight away. Not everyone is up to that. I think what we didn't do was try and go out and go, we need to have different leadership. You know, what we did was we, we tried to create a, a sort of a compelling vision and context for the future that required this type of leadership you know it wasn't i think sometimes we try and and i suppose if we when because we, we're talking about well-being is is that you can't convince people to go that that well-being is important because they they already know it but if they don't have action of which to get after it no no matter of, of trying to tell them to do it will actually make any difference going back to you said for how, how do you how do you compel leaders to change and i think it is is that actually you've got to compel them to to try and 
get inside of the future that requires the shift as opposed to trying to drive the shift does that make sense you know the, that my fear is and this is my fear for anything to do with well-being safety capability is it ends up in the box of having to comply with it so and it's the same for safety it's the same with everything is is that when it ends up in the compliance box you are now just basically in you get the best out of you, you, you can. It's it's gonna it'll it requires enormous amounts of energy. It's likely to run out of steam. All those sort of stuff. When things end up in the compliance box, which is usually people comply when they're re responding to a request. So Sarah, you go. I want us to have a focus on well-being. I want you to now do this, and people will go. Okay, I can comply with your request, Sarah. Now there is a number of people who will go. I don't even you didn't even need me to ask that, Sarah. I know that I'll do that. Yeah, because I'm committed. But so I'm. I'm always looking for the world of how do you create commitment, not compliance. You've got to, you know, the only way for people to truly commit is if to, in effect, give them the opportunity to create it themselves. And I think that's probably the bit where I've learned over my years, probably as we've been trying to shift the leadership journey for kinetics and now necessarily, obviously, when I'm now working with Ryan is if in any way they think that they are responding to my request, then the best we'll get is compliance, which isn't bad but it just won't be sufficient to what we could achieve. I think we comply with the health and safety system. I think we comply with training and capability systems. I think we comply all the time because we've never really had a choice in creating it. So my view is, is that to get well-being or to get leadership into the organization, the key is, is giving people the choice and that choice is compelled by a future that they can see. Does that make sense? It does. And it almost had me thinking, are we in a compliance stage at the moment with well-being? Do you think that's what is partly driving the interest in well-being at the moment or do you think it's that people are looking to the future and saying we need our people to be well because that will be crucial to the recovery yeah that's a really interesting point put it this way i think before covid i think we were well-being was heading into a compliance world would be my gut feel i am not basing that on any scientific research that it was a little bit like everyone's doing it we should really be doing it and when one has a compliance approach for well-being you end up with fruit bowls and gym memberships uh, and and if anyone that's what they have i'm not trying to be critical that's what happens you know truly committed to well-being actually is deep much deeper than that it's it's your well-being it's your engagement of your people and fulfillment of their purposes and lives and all those sorts of things you know i, I think my my gut feel or my concern would be that 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 well-being ends up in the compliance bucket I think that this COVID response has given well-being the people the, the opportunity to uh, see the need for well-being. My fear would be as it goes back. So I was sort of thinking about it. I was, I was thinking about it the other day, going, "What is it? Why is it that actually during crises, people are actually often way more engaged?" Which is kind of weird because right now we are totally disengaged from the human contact. You know, it's the, it's the, I'm not sure what the group's like, but it's the one thing I miss out of everything is uh, the fact that I don't get to see my human contact, you know, work friends, you know, talk, chat, you know, things like that. Um, I love the fact that I'm home with my family and that in between video conferences, if I get a five minute gap, I can whip out and see my teenagers or see my wife, et cetera, and things like that. And I was thinking that what is it about crisis that actually shifts the engagement needle because I'm, I'm not sure if anyone in the group's done a pulse survey but i've heard a few people say oh engagement's like 90 percent 100 percent and it and it's sort of and so so i was thinking of the five things that i think that are um, that are in play during a crisis one is is that everybody starts talking about purpose 
You know, they just purpose becomes a word that usually everyone thinks they, they talk about a lot, but in a crisis, they talk about purpose. Number two is just about every leader I know shifts into what I'd call a human-centric approach rather than what, what I'd call a performance-centric approach. So we care about humans. It's a little bit like we can't care about performance because it's so bad that, you know, it was, it was, so we compare it humans. Number three is we give people autonomy to act. So we go, we can't solve this ourselves. We're going, and, we, and things like people working from home, you know, I don't know if anyone's ever shifted to a working from home environment without a crisis. Gosh, you need to set up procedures and protocols and principles and make sure nobody's breaking laws and rules. And then whereas in COVID, we just said, everyone go home, you know, <laughs> just just go home. This is, you know, this is you know, this number three. So autonomy to act. Number four, they give people permission to fail because there is no right or wrong answer to this. So there's no, you can't actually be wrong in a COVID response because there's no right model. So everyone's got permission to fail. And the last one probably is more, more important is leaders all of a sudden become present to their people. So I talked to a guy the other day who said that he is, his team are like going gangbusters on this. And he, I said, uh, and he goes, I said, why is that? And he said, uh, I asked the team and they said, because I spend half an hour every morning with them just checking to see if they're okay. And I said, what's the likelihood of you doing that when you go back to the office? And he said, zero. So the leader is really present and they have a one-on-one and they have a communication. How are you? How's your family? How's your dog? You know, we know more about each other's personal lives. You know that I'm sitting in my wife's sewing room. You know, most people didn't know until that time that my wife's sewing. So we've been invited into people's lives. But the, but the key is present. So clarity of purpose, human-centric approach, autonomy to act, permission to fail, and leadership being present drives people engagement and when people are engaged their well-being goes up so the question i have as a leader to myself and to any other leader out there is how do we keep those five things present when we go back to probably what i'd consider a performance centric approach to business leadership so yeah so that's the bit i'm challenging myself with is you know how do i maintain myself being a human centric leader and i'd i consider myself in that space normally but I probably see, you see an even bigger one when it's under a crisis state. So yeah, it's just something that I think that we uh, that we just need to work on. I don't know how to do it. It's interesting because that's often what they talk about, isn't it, with American presidents? That there's this kind of underlying thing they like to be a president during war because it galvanizes people. There's a, a common yeah. thing they're all working towards. It's that purpose that you that you speak to. Yeah. Everyone talks about purpose and everyone and does, does gives up on talking about the 90% of the dross that we talk about on a normal basis. You know, that's yeah. like, I'm, not, I'm try, not trying to be critical. I'm just yeah. saying that you know, I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody, you know, you fall into, fall into trap. I mean, I, for several years after the earthquake in Christchurch, we had staff saying to us, could we go back to what it was like after the earthquake? And you sort of like go, what, the time where you were working 16 hours a day and your house was broken and your family were all stressed? And they go, yeah, that time it was so good. And you just go, well, what causes that? And I think I'd look at my leadership at the time. One of my biggest responsibilities every morning in that time was making sure that everybody had lunch. And then at about two o'clock in the afternoon, I had a, a box of 30 ice creams and I'd find one of our crews and we'd dish out ice creams. You know, what, what, where does that fit in the leadership playbook of being a chief executive? And then, of course, six months after that, we were back to, sorry, I'd love to come out to site, guys, but I've got to write this board paper. You know, and I wish I could be a better leader, but I've got this to do, and I've got that to do, and and things like that, and and we just all fall into the trap of that. So, so I so I don't know how to do that yet, but my challenge to myself and the challenge to all leaders is, what have you, what have you, what sort of leadership have you displayed during this period, and how are you going to keep it in play? Um, and yeah, and I think well, your question that you asked before is how do we how do we engage people well in, in being committed to well being? You know, to, I mean, yeah. 
you're probably more of an expert than I am in this, but <laughs> well, I feel like you've got a, a you know a fantastic perspective. And and one of the things that when you and I first started talking about this was we talked about that whole idea of measurement and yep. you know, of well-being. And I was reflecting then as you were talking, and and part of that sounds to me like the way that we value the time of leaders and where we see their yep. time best spent. And a lot of that relates to measures and outputs and you know, at the end of the day, you know, what, how many widgets have we produced or, you know, is our health and safety. So do you think we need to be using different measures even? Is that part of the argument with, with leader, with leaders about why we need well-being and the role of it? Yep. Uh, That's a really good question. And Sarah and I were having a good chat about that a while ago. And see, I've got this theory and and, because I'm an accountant, my my background's being a chartered accountant. Uh, Don't hold that against me. Um, uh, That, um, we treat humans in our business like a P&L item. Imagine if we, if we treated everything about our humans in our business as a, a balance sheet item. So, say, Sarah, you're 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 one of our. You know, how many times do CEOs talk about humans being their biggest asset? You know, that's a that's a it's it's in the just so everyone knows that's in the CEO CEO 101 playbook of speeches. Uh, the second one is is we're going to be innovative. That's number two. Yeah, I'll stop because there are many more that come with the, in the playbook. Um, but humans are our biggest asset. But they're one of the few assets that we currently own that don't sit on the balance sheet. They're an income or an expense item in our in our P&L. So imagine if we had it. So Sarah, you're one of our assets. Okay, so and I value you currently at a certain amount. Let's just say you're worth a million dollars because because you are you're probably two million. Hayden says five million, but let's not give away too many secrets. Um, so you're a million dollars now. But if you are an asset that we don't invest in, you'll start depreciating. You know, you'll start, your value will go down. And when I say investing, I'm investing in your, your technical capability, your leadership skills, your well-being, your engagement, all this sort of thing. And as an organization, we start to go, wow, our, our assets are starting to devalue here. We would go, rather than saying Sarah, we're sending Sarah on some sort of development course and that's a cost, we're actually, we're actually doing asset replacement. We're doing or, or asset um, refurbishment where we're increasing the life of our value of our asset. We're extending, the, we're extending Sarah's you know, um, value you and then things like that so we're so we're sort of we're sort of permeating with this idea of how could we create the thought process about the well-being of your people and the engagement of your people as a as a balance sheet item that that you invest in and you um, continue to grow you know if you have an asset one of the things you're trying to do is you're trying to extract its greatest value out of it over the period of time and things like that but also too isn't it wouldn't it be fun the idea of saying say your asset value was something that belonged to you and when you were going to a new company, they knew what you were you, know, you were truly worth. So you know, I've got we've got these crazy ideas about the idea of could we create something like a European Soccer League transfer system? Where, you know, so Sarah works for for me, and I invest in Sarah, and I invest in she. I get her value from five hundred thousand to a million dollars. So when Sarah goes to another organisation, in effect, they pay me for the investment that's been made because they're benefiting. They're the one that are generating the the value out of that asset. Now these are all harebrained ideas. I'm completely uh, aware, but it what I'm trying to say is the, the idea that we, we talk about measuring value, but we always talk in, in profit and loss items as opposed to talking in balance sheet items. So I think you know, all my, my concern would be, for example, like a well-being or an engagement score to me as a P&L item. You know, it's a, it's you know, as opposed to what's the what's the enduring value that we're either creating or devaluing in our business that we uh, need to continue to invest in. And I think I I, I wonder I just wonder as if 
if we could get it in the context of a balance sheet item, it will draw the attention of CEOs and boards at a far greater level than a P&L item. There's my, there's my challenge to the group, is, is if we could create something like that, I'd be really interested to know what people's thoughts are, whether it could be, whether it could be done and, and how it would be affected, you know, what would be the rules, all that sort of thing. But I suppose people say, oh, but you can't do that. But, you know, if anyone else has got a accounting background, you can, you can value things like intangible assets like goodwill. It's, it's a number. People have made it up at some point. We have systems for testing it to see if it's right or wrong. Yeah, it's doable. You don't have to be a tangible asset. So, yeah, so uh, look, if people have got, I see some comments popping up, which is great. So if anyone's got ideas about how you could, how we could create value at a more enduring asset value than a more of a revenue and cost way, I think this way we measure things at the moment. Um, so I have the same applies to, for things like safety. When we value, when we measure safety, we measure it in profit loss, i.e. things like, um, uh, uh, you know, accidents that have happened, you know, those are that, that's a profit and loss thing. Imagine if you said, what if you could value the likelihood of your organization being safe for the next 12 months? Such I don't know how to do conversation, that. conversation, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm a, I'm, yeah, I'm, one of the things I'm stuck with at the moment is I'm stuck between living in the future and trying to deal with myself and the, and the current. Yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a challenging world. You know? it's, I feel it's like back, I... back to the future. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me about what you're saying there, Jono, was really it's about using the language of CEOs and yep. and taking it from a a risk conversation, which is often a place we come from because that's easy to put red flags in front of people yep. and say, if you don't invest in this, the following will happen. Yep. But what it sounds to me is what you're doing is actually taking that same language and giving in a completely fresh way that's actually really engaging. And it, and it talks mm. to, to seeing people, as you say, as a, as a tangible asset and actually saying, but like anything, if I invest in my assets, like if I invest in my house, it will increase and I will be better off. My organization will be better off because of that. Mm. Would that be a... Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I just... If we continue to orientate from a current way forward, which is usually based on current risks and what do we do if we don't get those risks, my fear is is that the ability to really shift the dial is is really difficult. You know, you end up probably in compliance based and things like that. I'm I'm a big advocate of of now, which is something that I've learned myself over the last year, is operating from a future orientated state backwards. What does having well being look like? If we were a fully engaged, high well being what would it actually look like, which gives people a compelling reason to go over there. And I think that we try and give people data to sort of show, you know, there's so many, you could read every report in the world that says, you know, any investment in enrollment, uh, sorry, in wellbeing and that, well, you'll get back three to one and all this. So it's like, there's more than enough data in the world to, to go, we should do it. So what's causing us not to is the, is the question that probably is compelling. But I think it's because we haven't really designed the future that we want to fulfill on. And once you, yeah, I just say, I suppose you encourage everybody to go, when you're trying to enroll your chief executive, don't, my, my, my gut feels, don't try and enroll them from a problem state forward. Enroll them in a future that you see and the gap that's going to take us to get there. And like, I'm more than happy to have any offline conversations with anyone about how that could be, could be achieved because I do think it's the big shift we need. Um, it's the big shift in leadership. It's the big shift in orientation in our businesses, et cetera, et cetera. So. Excellent. We'll take um, questions in just a moment. I said two last questions for you, John. And the yes. first is in your role in the business leaders health and safety forum, you, where do you see this? I mean, the health and safety has certainly been a big part. And I know there's been a move to, to mental health in there. Yep. 
do you think it's a, still an easy conversation to be having or do you think there's still a lot of work to be done? Um, it's a good question actually because I suppose there's the big, I think one of the big challenges with safety, and I, correct me if I haven't answered your question properly here, one of the big questions is, is that we, we've sort of created safety as something outside of what we do as work. And my big push is trying to get safety integrated back into work. And I think the journey for the well-being journey is to make sure we don't follow the same path that well-being becomes something other than what we do on a daily basis. It's a little bit like, I was thinking about it this morning, is it's one of those things that it's really, really awesome if an organization has a well-being team. But it's also a really bad reflection on the company that they need to have a well-being team. Does that make sense? That you, that you go... It's like we've got a work improvement team and the reason we have a work improvement team is because we can't get any work done or improvement done through normal line management. So we can celebrate the fact that we have a work improvement team and then give ourselves an uppercut that we have a work improvement team. So, so what we have to do with the mantra of the work improvement team is to go, we need to no longer be needed in two years time. And I'd, I'd really challenge the wellbeing world to think like that too is that the fact that we need a well-being world is actually a fundamental failure of our leadership system. So if anyone that's in well-being going is that my main aim is to make myself redundant. It's an interesting challenge. Someone's once said to me, what would I do if I make myself redundant because I've, I've managed to truly integrate well-being to everything I do? And my answer to that is, if you can achieve that, there isn't an organization in the world that won't employ you and pay you whatever you want. Because if you've actually managed to integrate safety and well-being and engagement into everything we do in our leadership, you are going to be the most sought-after person in the world. So don't fear the idea of making yourself redundant from your existing organisation. Uh, in fact, do it. <laughs> you know, because because the more we need well-being, is is the more is probably the it means that we're sort of failing in our leadership. Does that make sense? Totally um, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, oh, so, I, my fear for for kinetics and Narayan is that we end up with a well-being team, mm -hmm. not because we don't need it. We certainly need it. We we hundred percent need it, but it's not what we ultimately need in our team. So, it's the same in safety. So, I'm trying to integrate my 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 position. Let's integrate safety back into work. It's quite a complicated conversation because, of course, people go, but that means you're downplaying safety. You know, if you don't have a safety team, it means you don't care about it. You know, so it's like, so yes, yeah, so it's, it's a tricky situation. So I don't know if I answered your question. I just know that actually um, the, the, the way that I see and think about the way we should operate is sometimes quite at odds to the way a lot of people do. It doesn't make me right. It doesn't, and like, in no way it is right. It just means my brain operates slightly different orientation. Um, and I am absolutely sure, how, I'm absolutely aware of how hard it is it's going to be to try and get people to, to orientate in the same way or get my thinking back into a more, more you know, what is normal type thing. So, yeah, so like, I'd like to say, I don't think I answered your question at all, but it, it's, yeah, I hope it helped a little bit. Yeah, it did, definitely. And I think probably just the last question I have, and then we can open it up to the questions on the floor, is you know, thinking about a lot of the people in this group, if they're going, right, okay, I really want to get the leaders on board with this well-being. I always want to make the most of what we've got now and everyone's really engaged. In six, 12 months even time, yep. how do I keep that momentum? What are almost like if I had like top three tips or four tips? That's a good question. I suppose, you know, the one thing I can think of off the top of my head is, is orientate towards where do we want to be in 12 months time? What do you want the outcome to be? Not what steps do we have to take to get there? Don't start with the steps. Don't start with, uh, we've got this problem. Our staff are disengaged. We need to do some engagement things. <laughs> I'd say, what would you like it to be in 12 months? Or what would it look like 
if we had a fully engaged workforce and then go once they've spent some time permeating in that ask them then to look back to where we are now and see if ask them the question are the things that we're currently doing going to get us to this outcome and if you can get them to see that that we're not they're not directionally aligned they're then likely to turn to you and go sarah help us you know what? What you know? Yeah. What, what do we do? What do we do? You know, sort of. You know, and, you know, create that sort of necessity to panic. So compel them towards what future that they want and see and think they need, and then get them to look. Get them to look back. And I think that you might have more success in them going, "Wow, we can't get anywhere near there if our people aren't engaged and particularly not well and functioning to their best and unleashing their full potential and all those sort of things. How do we do that, Sarah? What do we do?" Uh, and then there might be a like, well, here's my plan that I'd already prepared, but because you you mighty leaders have come up with this, now I'll uh, I'll show it to you. So so you so you got in a way let them create the that the idea is theirs. That would be my view. Trying to impose the need to well-being, they will agree because it's because it's needed. But I think that my my fear is that you'll end up in a compliance state. again for listening today it's been great to have you along if you're keen to join the wellness champions network head along to myhealthrevolution.co.nz and follow the links to subscribe if you're in the network thanks again and we look forward to catching up with you really soon